0: Hi, and welcome to House Call, our podcast designed to help you navigate the New York City real estate market. I'm Andrew Fishkind. As always, here with my co-hosts and partners, Carl Eckroth and Emily Margolin. Hello. Hey, everyone. We're here today with Gil Ladaney, a senior loan officer at Cross Country Mortgage, the mortgage partner of Douglas Elliman Real Estate. Good morning, Gil. Good morning, everyone. Gil, we've been hosting a series of discussions about how first-time homeowners can prepare to purchase apartments in New York City, and we also are getting a lot of questions about the mortgage market in general, so we thought today would be a perfect day to bring you in and talk about exactly that. Thank you so much for thinking to me, guys. Glad to be here.
1: Thanks for coming.
0: Why don't we start with the process for a first-time homebuyer?
2: I think when we talk about a first-time homebuyer specifically, uh, the most important piece is to start early and identify the price range that they're looking for and then work backwards into a monthly payment that makes sense for them. So probably the first, first step I like to say is to have a discussion with a mortgage professional and talk about those numbers and how they'll be affected by certain market conditions, right? Certain things like loan limits, how much they want to spend, what type of down payments they have, even and this is all projecting forward, right? We try to categorize everybody into immediate needs, those buying in the next 30 to 60 days, those buying maybe two to six months, six months or beyond, and then even a year past. Once we identify that piece, we like to work on credit almost immediately. The biggest issue I see up front when trying to qualify someone is everyone has access to their credit and their credit scores. We all think that, well, I'm uh, an 820 on credit karma. So I have the best credit and that's all that matters. And nothing could be further from the truth, right? Credit cards, credit karma, other places you find your credit information, they're going to give you fake credit scores. What we call FACO scores, if you will, they'll use different scoring models Mm -hmm. and aren't the ones that we use. So, Everyone listening to this, if you're using credit karma and think you have great credit, think again because it's just it's just not. I'm so the surprised that they use. by that.
1: What about the credit card scores that they give you? Like Citibank, for example, will have like a score that they'll.
2: It's dependent on who the issuer is. So Citibank, for instance, will give you a FICO score, but they're only going to give you one out of the three repositories. Also, they're not going to update it dynamically. It's updated, I think, to like every four or five weeks. It's like less than monthly. It's weird. American Express, for instance, which I'm a big user of, American Express does not give you a FICO score. American Express gives you something called a Vantage score, which is an entirely different credit model and is so vastly different that the 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 model itself can vary within 100 points, uh, sometimes even more. Yeah.
3: I end up going on like five or six different of my apps, Chase, Bank of America, Wells Fargo, American Express, just to see all the different scores.
0: Do you it, think though that, um credit card score is like a good guideline. So if I get, I got my Citibank visa bill last week and in it it said I had a credit score of 809 or 811, something like that. So I think it's, is it reasonable for me to think that my credit score is probably above 750? It's definitely reasonable to think, hey,
2: all of these resources tell me that I have good credit. It's a logical assumption to say, yes, I have good credit. And what I can tell you is 99 out of 100 times Everybody who has bad credit, they know they have bad credit, mm-hmm. one way or another, right? Uh, we can get into credit and how specific that is, but I, I, I think it's for a, a conversation for a different time. It's just the important piece to understand that. And then Andrew, to your point, once you say, "Well, I have good credit," well, that's the end of it, right? That's I, I know. Let's say I actually know what my score is, and I know it's a, it's an eight hundred score, or it's a seven eighty, or whatever. Well, that's all I need, right? The truth is, no. We have to talk about things like depth of credit, right? Mm-hmm. Especially with how With how invasive maybe a a building's going to get, right? When we go through board approval for for a package. Um, Generally, we want to see four active trade lines for at least 12 months. I can't tell you how many kids will come to me and say, I have a great credit score. They have one credit card. They got it a year, two years ago. They have nothing else. And they have a 750 score. And they're like, I I have great credit. Don't you? It's like, no, you don't.
1: I'm writing this down.
2: (laughs) (laughs) I hope everyone at home is taking notes too.
1: Four active trade lines.
2: That's that's kind of the standard, especially when we're dealing with the jumbo world or the manual underwrite world. We want to see four different trade lines with a history of at least 12 months.
1: And I just want to go back for the people who are listening who are not familiar with the FICO score. There's three companies. It's Equifax, TransUnion, mm-hmm. and...
2: So close. Uh, Exper- Ex- Experian. Experian.
1: That's Experian. our
2: theory. Uh So those are the three credit repositories okay. that keep all the information. Um, their job is to to keep us updated. Uh, and to complicate things further, there are many different FICO models. FICO scoring models, we use the latest one. I forget you know what the, the, the version is. But like when you go and you buy a car, they're using a totally different FICO model. Oh yeah. So whatever what your credit score is there, it's like it's a borderline irrelevant. <laughs> so you I didn't a car, yeah, there's this there's, there's a lot. Well, we all have to <laughs> we all have to make money doing different things, right? So <laughs> there's a credit scoring guys to, to handle every different transaction.
3: Right. So you've looked at. So again, this, let's. I just want to circle back to that buyer. So the buyer, first time buyer, has come to you. You guys have started to review your, your app. You've run the credit. Let's assume that's in good shape, right? Right. Average score of eight, whatever. In, in terms of how you guys qualify, you say that this this person's great. What's next for that buyer? Because I hear a lot of buyers often come to us and say. Um, we've got We got the pre-qual letter, I already talk, talked to the guy. I always wanna see the pre-approval letter. So if maybe you can jump into a little bit about the difference between those two as well, because I think a lot of the buyers are confused as to what is what.
2: Yeah, um, you know, really the, the, there's no real standard for what these terms are. Uh, I, I could tell you how most of us in the industry view them. There, it's. You're not a real application until you have a property, right? So there's no real legal definition of what a pre-approval is or a pre-qualification is. In the generalist sense, a pre-qualification form is someone like me sitting here having an open conversation. I write a few things down. Maybe I take some notes. I do some math in my head, but I'm really going off of what you tell me. I'm, I'm looking at income or assets that you've stated to me, doing some calculations and saying, all right, I'm willing to give you a letter to say, I, you know, I believe in you. Uh, In a lot of ways, it's not really worth the paper it's printed on, whereas a pre-approval is that next step. where We're actually going to pull credit. We're going to do a deeper dive into, and this is probably what you were talking about, a deeper dive into the credit itself, right? Because if you come to me and say, well, I have a 750 credit score, great, but you only have one trade line. Well, now you're ineligible for half the products out there. We would go through the income line by line and really come up with an idea, right? I mean, there are so many different different ways you can get tripped up when you're trying to say, well, you know, I made $400,000 last year, so I know I qualify for X. Well, you didn't tell me that half of that was a bonus, and you only got that bonus once out of the past two years, and it's not eligible, we're not going to use any of it. Um, you know, there's, there's a lot of different nuance that has to be done, and that's what a pre-approval is going to do. So, so my next step is to have that person apply through an online portal, go through that application, which is de- definite, definitely um, extensive. And then upload all of their documentation, everything to our secure portal. And then I'll, I'll sit down. I I call it, you know, uh, I'll check under the hood once once you pull the car in. Then I can say confidently, I know 100%. I've done the calculations. I've gone through your income. I've gone through your assets. I've taken a look really at the depth of your credit. Then I issue a formal pre-approval letter, which is, which is to me another piece and an even another step, right?
3: So would it be fair to say that the pre-qual letter, you're just kind of doing a walk around the car mm-hmm. and the... Pre-approval, you're looking under the hood.
2: I like everything that we're I'm doing. I'm so here. happy. And I would, I would definitely say that.
1: I have a question. Um, so this pre-approval letter, usually you give some sort of rate quote, correct? Is this? Can you talk a little bit sure. about that?
2: So, in in the past, we've done that. Uh, the problem is, right? I, I interest rates obviously are volatile, and they've been volatile, and we'll, we'll talk about them a little bit more. They've been volatile for the past year plus the interesting thing is when you're going through the pre approval process you know the home search process we all know there there really is no interest rate because it's irrelevant what what interest rates are until you find that home until you put an offer in get it accepted and get a contract you don't have the ability to secure any type of interest rate because everything is everything is uh, focused on the actual or, att- or attached to the property so if we don't have a property what i tell people is this is like calling your stockbroker and saying, well, how much is Disney? Disney's 100 bucks a share. Do you, sir, do you want to buy it? Well, yes, but not yet. I'm going to have the money in two weeks. When I have the money in two weeks, then I'll buy my Disney stock. In two weeks, you have the money and you say, you call your stockbroker, you say, I want my Disney stock for $100 a share. Well, sorry, now the price is $120 a share, right? It's all when are we ready for it? So, so I try to get I try to get out of the realm of talking about I, I like to give a rough idea of where interest rates are, but I think if there's a piece of paper that says, here is your pre-approval, and it says 5% or 4%, people definitely gravitate towards that. And they show up a month later with their property and say, well, I'd like my mortgage with my 4% rate, please.
0: And you're touching on why I've been counseling clients for years, actually, since knowing you, quite frankly, and talking about this with you, to work with a bank or a mortgage, a loan officer, that you have a relationship with. And if it's a bank where you have a lot of assets and can know you can get a discounted rate or a loan officer that has products you like or a loan officer you have experience with and you know can get a deal done easily for you because otherwise you're just rate shopping something that makes absolutely no sense because one bank can give you the lowest rate by three points but by the time you go to lock a rate and find a property, that rate won't be there anyway. Correct. Rates uh, gonna go down too. I mean, especially in this yeah. market these
2: past six, seven weeks, rate, rates have been going down. So. Uh, you could, you, it, It's so consumers, when they're going through this process, they're scared. They don't know what's happening. They read crazy things on the internet because that's really what the internet does now. It gives us crazy articles. And they could, it, it could be so innocuous. They could get something that says a higher rate on it. Two weeks rates are down. They see something. You know, they, could, they could get a pre-approval that says 6% rate on it, right? Knowing that it means nothing. In two weeks, rates could be down. They could read an article on Google that says rates are now 5%. And they're looking at their pre approval, and they're saying, "I'm not going to go to this guy. He gave me six percent, knowing that that his or her rate is could could be the same or even better than that." Right? Um, at the same time, rates go up. They're showing back, so oh, I have this pre approval that says I'm getting six, even though rates are seven. And none of that is true. Um, and I think we don't have to talk about whether people do or don't read fine print in letters, but all the stuff is spelled out. It's just I, I try to have this conversation over and over again as much as possible.
1: Um, I would like to insert. A dumb question or an outside question. So, can one assume that outside of the Fed's rate, you know, um, can one assume that the more significant your assets, the higher your credit score, the better your
2: rate? G- generally speaking, yes. Um, the more money you put down, you know, there's essentially a big, massive grid that we have. And for different products, the grid is different. But based on Basically, the the higher all of the numbers are, meaning the higher your down payment, the higher your credit score, right, the lower the rate's gonna correspond. And inversely, the other way, if you have maybe poorer credit or a smaller down payment, right, your debt to income ratio is is significantly higher, it's gonna tick up, tick up. We call it risk-based pricing, right? So basically, the higher risk you are to any one bank, the higher your pricing is going to be which in many ways is counterintuitive because if you think I'm a bad credit risk why would you make it more expensive for me but you know I'm not here to tell you the mortgage business
0: is logical <laughs> and it's also I want to go back to what you're saying before um about Really, when you are working with somebody and finding a product for them and finding what works well with them, it's really, I mean, I tell clients this also all the time. Nobody's, much probably much to your relief, nobody really seems to understand this, but that just because you've gotten a pre-approval letter from a bank does not mean it's the bank you have to do the financing with when you ultimately purchase. And if rates have radically changed at one bank or another, it's never a bad idea to have multiple quotes and multiple ideas. It's just not necessarily the lowest rate that makes sense to be the bank you proceed with at that moment. Co- correct. I mean, one of, one of my processes, so if we
2: go back and try to all this together to, to our process, right? Once we have that conversation, and, and I really try to do a very intensive consultation and find out, you know, not just, hey, can you get this loan, but what kind of a loan do you want? What are your needs? How long are you going to stay in this property? What purpose is it going to serve? Do you plan to move out? Do you plan to turn it into a rental? Um, from there, we find the best product that, that suits you then we we come through with the qualification part of it, right? The approval part of it. And what I tell everyone is while you're at the pre-approval stage, I mean I know people who go and get multiple pre-approvals. Uh, and I'm not telling anyone not to do that, but man, to talk to five different people like me within a week that you sounds do that that's cool.
0: but that's also cre- that's also multiple credit polls, right? Correct, right.
2: yes. Um but you know there there's a lot of debate on how the credit polls actually work, right? If you do them within 14 days, or is it 28 days? Do they appear or hurt you or not hurt you? My, I try to say, this is why you have good credit. You work your whole life to get good credit. You can get a good mortgage. Don't be scared of a mortgage pull because once, who cares if your credit goes down a little bit? Right. Uh, you're using it to get the most expensive thing you're ever going to buy. Right. But I do think if you get five mortgage pulls, it's going to raise questions. In general, yeah, I, but I think if, if it's all part of your process, we—I'll tell you right now—we have never at any bank I've ever worked at, and I've I've worked at some very lenient banks. I've worked at very conservative banks. I can tell you, there is never a time I have seen someone get declined because of too many credit pulls because they were shopping. Hmm. Um, you know, the uh, good to know. yeah. So it's, it's it's just an interest. It's just an interesting belief that I think a lot of people have. You know, and then what I tell people at the same time is, again, once you get that contract, right? In New York, we are blessed or cursed with this attorney review period, which just seems to be getting longer and longer. That time, that's when you know you have a property. To me, that's your time to go and shop. Then make your phone calls, you know, see, because <clears> that's because you're comparing like versus like.
0: Right, I'd agree with that. Okay, I feel like that's a great overview for first-time home buyers. I'm gonna shift gears a little bit. And um, if you would talk about, uh, well, you can talk about, I mean, you can't foresee the future, unfortunately, or we'd be having a whole different conversation. But the the media storm of information about how mortgage rates are skyrocketing contrary to what's actually happening. But I think more importantly, the variety of products that are out there that make sense for different peoples in a higher mortgage environment. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 it's a lot to talk about. Yeah. but, but I, I th- Well, that's why we brought you in. We knew you'd have a lot to say about it.
2: <laughs> I think that... It's to look at, before you look at where we are, it's very important to look at where we were, right? So, you know, 2019, we averaged interest rates um, in the fours from the, from the higher fours down to the lower fours, depending on what type of product, right? Um, you know, Generally, jumbo loans, right, have over the conforming limit, uh, which right now is 1,089,000 in New York. Uh, by the time this airs, who knows, they may be 2 million. Hmm. Considering that, I, I just wanna say, Jumbo loans generally are going to have better interest rates than you know conforming or non-jumbo loans. So you know maybe the higher fours in 2019 for the conforming stuff, lower fours or maybe into the high threes if, if you got lucky and, and, and caught a good day um, on a 30 year fixed for, for a jumbo loan. Now we went into this area that was really, really uncharted territory for us. Uh, we lived with interest rates that were so low for two solid years. you know I think we just became accustomed to them. And rates in the range of you know two and a half percent to three percent. I mean, I remember quoting people three and a quarter on a certain day and them saying, Well, that's that's too high. <laughs> and and it's it's just a it's a very interesting kind of kind of world we lived in, right? So that incredibly low period, which led to an amazing amount of purchases and refinancing, led directly to the fastest climb in interest rates we've ever had in the history of interest rates. Um Rates averaged about 3% towards the end, I want to say it was December of 2021. Six months later, rates were averaging around 6%. By the time we hit, I want to say, October of earlier this year, we were averaging over 7% on a 30-year fixed. So let me just put it into context. Uh, context: In less than 12 months, rates more than doubled. It's a lot for a buyer to take in. Correct. And, and when you put that in terms of real dollars, listen, on a million dollar loan, um, that's about $1,500 more on a monthly payment. And that's real money.
1: We know, we know <laughs> about that, yeah.
2: So when we consider that, um, I, I think we have to take into account what the market did and how the market reacted. Well, first of all, what drove all this, right? Oh, the Fed Fed raised rates. The Fed raised rates. Correct. The Fed did raise rates. They needed to make up for a lot of low interest rates. But I want to be clear. The Fed raises the overnight funds rate. The Fed raises the rates, right? The Fed funds rate, which is the rate that they lend money to banks at, okay? Those rates directly tie into credit cards, auto loans, um, a lot of unsecure financing like credit cards or, or other lines of credits from banks, things like that. The Fed does not control, they do not raise, they do not lower, they don't do anything to, to mortgage interest rates. And this is, I think, a big misnomer that everyone thinks, right? I can't tell you how many people have called me and said, well, there's gonna be a Fed meeting tomorrow, rates are gonna go up half a percent. If anybody knew that, we would, I, I, the mortgage business wouldn't be challenging for anyone. It's It's a free market, right? Bonds are bought, sold, traded, that affects how mortgages trade. And what the prices are for mortgage-backed securities, which then drives
0: rates lower, higher, or keeps them the same. Is it fair to think of that as the Fed really just controls your, the bank's net cost of the money? How you mark it up for a mortgage is really up to the individual bank. To, to a degree, it's, it's, it's almost less. The Fed, I would say, what the Fed does is the Fed
2: is giving you guidance. The Fed gives guidance to, to the overall economy. right? So right. the Fed comes out. It's really, I tell everyone at the Fed meetings, it's less what they do as far as in terms of rates. It's more about what they say if the fed comes out and says inflation is high and we foresee it continuing to be high and we will continue to push interest rates up well that's going to take that that's going to force all of the investors to sell bonds right have those yields rise right and as the yields rise rates will go up it's it's kind of a confidence play and sometimes the market digest, digests what the fed tells them to do the other direction right sometimes you know, Powell or some other Fed chair will come out and, and have a talk and they, they'll expect the market to do one thing. And instead of zigging, they'll zag. Um, but it is a free market and they kind of take their cues from the Fed. So this year, 2022, well, actually last year now, we had so many interest rate hikes. I mean, the prime rate now sits at seven and a half percent, which is, is unbelievable compared to where we were. So, so the Fed is constantly telling the market rates are going up, rates are going up, rates are going up. And the market says, okay, rates are going up. So we all buy into the, to the, to the same plan. Mm-hmm. Now the market, the free trading market, the stock market says the same thing, but the MBS or the treasury market tries to be a little bit ahead, maybe it's six months or so. So the Fed's been still been raising rates the past two or three meetings, but rates have been going down. Why? Because there's like a light at the end of the tunnel. So the market is saying, saying to us, well, six months from now, rates are, the Fed's gonna start maybe lowering rates or stop raising rates. So the market's already responding with lower interest rates
0: now and acting as if that's, that future is the current world. And that's actually why I think the discussion about products is so important because the average apartment owner in Manhattan or New York City or, well, I don't know, I'll speak about Manhattan. The average apartment, in Manhattan or the average apartment owner in Manhattan holds their apartment for seven to 10 years. So when interest rates were really at their historic lows, it made a lot of sense to get a 30-year fixed mortgage at 3%, 2.75, 3.25, and and not think about it again. But if those 30-year fixed rates right now are approaching 7% or even in the low sixes, I mean, depending on the day and the time, and you know you're going to be in the apartment five to ten years. Then a ten-year arm might make a lot of sense, or a seven-year arm, or a five-year arm, or an interest-only loan. I mean, I could. That's now we've now exhausted all the products I know, but I'm sure <laughs> there are more. And I think that that's part of why you need a good loan officer because you can discuss what loans make the most sense for you. One hundred percent. Yep. Well I, said. I,
3: I yeah, and I think that most buyers right it's when they're talking about the interest rates it's the 30year fixed right. that's what they love it makes them feel good it's comfortable so I would imagine a lot of your work today is having those conversations with those buyers and saying well what is your 5 10 15 year plan um, how can we make that money work for you because there might be an opportunity to refinance two three four years down the road
2: correct so so it's amazing you know do you talk about you talk about you know seven to ten years for for a home in, in Manhattan I mean I'm, I'm gonna ask you do you guys know I, mean, I don't expect you to, but do you have any idea of what the normal time a mortgage is held? The first mortgage is held how long? They average in the U.S.
3: I would held
1: by under the bank 10, or
2: held by the by homeowner? the by, by the individual by the homeowner. How I long? would guess less than ten years. I would agree. I would guess less than three years. So name it, that tune. <laughs> <laughs> I was waiting for somebody to say one dollar. Um a Price is Right joke. the the average <laughs> The average is. Where no, the where's the
3: button? You have the wah 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 button.
2: It's
0: too wah, there wah, You know, I thought to
2: me, I thought it was my best line. Um,
3: Gil, we're still working. It's it's, <laughs> it's a work in progress. All
2: right. It's it's uh, six years is the average. Six. six. Yeah. Uh-huh. Okay. Yeah. Okay. So and and this under is, Price's is Right rules, I won. This is true. That's <laughs> the closest without going. Well, probably. they were vague. They just said less than ten. So everyone's a winner on 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 this podcast. Six years. <laughs> Wild, right? So so. The overwhelming truth, and this is what I tell people. Now, now, it makes sense
1: because like seven-year itch, you know? Yeah. You want to like absolutely overhaul your life like every six, seven years.
2: Between between moving, buying, selling, a huge financial windfall and just paying off your mortgage. That, yeah. ha- that happens a lot. Right. Nobody thinks it happens, but it does, right? How many people have refinanced to take money out to pay for college or or a business, right? Because for many, you know, most of us, our home is our biggest asset, Um. I just, I try to put everything into perspective with people and say, you, if you are an outlier, okay, but if you are not, you are not going to have this home for even on the, even if we add a couple extra years, you're not going to have this home for more than 10 years. More importantly, you're not going to have this mortgage for more than 10 years. So I always think, have that more real, re, uh, realistic conversation. And I have a risk versus reward conversation with everyone. And if you can, it all depends on the delta, right? If the 10-year arm, if the delta is an eighth of a percent, which sometimes it is based on, you know, yield curves and how markets trade, if that delta is only an eighth of a percent against a 30-year fixed, well, then maybe it's not worth it, right? If you're only saving 60 bucks a month, 70, 80 bucks a month, maybe you take the 30-year fixed and you deal with the extra 20 years of security. But if it's a half a percent, if it's five-eighths, if it's three, four, five, $600, which I've seen, think about what you could do with that extra money. Right. Um, and
0: it, it's all about education and learning those things. I just, I just, I'm sorry, I, yeah. I mean, interrupted, but including being disciplined to pay down the principal Correct. just at a better rate. Correct. Right. If you want to
2: make, so, I mean, this what I'll tell people at the same time, right? Make the same payment. You would, if I'm going to save you $500 a month, make this, make the same payment now. And then in seven years when you refinance, if you, cause you have to refinance or 10 years and you have to refinance, you probably are going to be in a, in a better position. Um, if you also look at rates historically, usually every 10 years we cycle, um, and as we cycle through rates now, uh, it's difficult because these last two years were, were so, uh, so unbearably low that when we look at, I mean, and I have a, I have a chart here that shows mortgage rates and where they've been every decade or so, there's two kind of, kind of curves up and then down. So. Generally speaking, within a 10-year period, you probably are going to have one or two chances to refinance just based on where the market is. Hmm. Um, You know, then on top of that, there's the certain forecasts of where we are. With rates coming up as quickly as they did, there is a belief that rates are going to fall. So uh, among my conversations with people, I use data. I use the conversation um, about what your plan is. And then i say well taking all that into account now that we dealt with rates that surged highly and I, I it looks like we've we've crested past the point basically the worst is over right I, mean, I think there was a there was a time there maybe a few months ago where we all thought well rates are going to keep going and we're going to deal with 10 or 11% interest rates i think we're over that i think we've seen hopefully that that's not going to happen so now my conversation is hey you're probably going to have this loan for shorter than those 6 years right cuz cuz rates are on the upswing or were on the upswing when you're purchasing you're purchasing closer to the height um, so to me it's almost a no-brainer to deal with an arm right or a loan that's gonna give you a lower payment
0: yeah. well, as so, I mean I, well, Gil yeah. and I know each other for a very long time I like interest only loans personally but that's a personal choice that uh, that comes from spending time with you and other loan officers that I've known over the years and understanding products that work best for me personally. And I encourage buyers all the time that that's what they should be doing is figuring out what works best for them. And that's
1: what we wanted to plug Gil a little bit. The reason why we chose him to come in is that he really has a great way of explaining things to people so that they can understand and wrap their head around it. Um, So we do recommend having a talk with him if you're interested in getting a, a loan on your house.
0: You guys flatter me, thank you. Well, Gil, we know you could talk about this all day, but our <laughs> podcast audience cannot listen to that all day. Thank you so much for coming in. And as always, we appreciate your help. Thanks so much for having me, guys. Thanks, Gil.